Picture you're behind the wheel in your car driving down the 90, we'll say, and you're cruising along at 65 mile an hour speed limit, no faster, no slower, and you notice up ahead that there's a work zone or some reason that the speed limit is dropping, and so like any law-abiding citizen, you take your foot off the gas, move it over to the brake pedal, begin to slow down, but instead of your car slowing down, it actually begins to accelerate. You think, huh, that's funny. So you try again, and it, once again, instead of your car slowing down, it actually begins to accelerate. And pretty soon you realize you don't know how to slow your car down. And that's, that work zone is coming up, or, or other obstacles are coming up in your path that are going to make that really urgent that you get your car to slow down. What do you do? 2009, Toyota had a rash of stuck accelerators that made national news. And there were many prominent examples of this, that, of, of really close calls. People who figured out a way to get out of it. And, and had some narrow misses and some really tragic cases that made national news and, and stories that went viral. Uh, but in 2009, this is a widespread issue for Toyota, and FBI Assistant Director George Manasalis said Toyota, quote, put, safety over sa- or put sales over safety rather, and profit over principle. And as a result of this, Toyota ended up recalling 3.8 million vehicles and paying $1.2 billion, billion with a B, in, in fines due to what was called deadly unintended acceleration. As a part of this, there are two theories on what was happening, why the accelerators were getting stuck. The first one was that maybe it was a software malfunction. Our, our computers these days are packed with computers and computing power. In fact, most likely, unless you drove an antique car here today, uh, your car sitting out in the parking lot has more computing power than the, the shuttles that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon. And yet still, most people can't figure out how to use their turn signals. <laughs> but so there was the theory was that software malfunction, somehow there was some kind of a computer glitch that caused the, the car to freak out and it just took off down the road despite what the driver was trying to do. The second theory was actually proven in some cases that uh, there were malfitting floor mats in these vehicles and that somebody would dry, press the gas pedal and the floor mat would slide up over top of the gas pedal and then when they go to take their foot off the gas pedal, the gas pedal would be stuck under the floor mat, uh, making it impossible to take your foot off the gas pedal, as it were. And this has actually proven to be the case. My mother-in-law and father-in-law were people who were affected by the recall of of millions and millions of Toyota floor mats to get the right size floor mats in there. And that was proven to be the case in some of those cases, but not all of them. But those were the two main theories behind the Toyota sudden acceleration incidents that were happening. But just think for a minute. If you're behind the wheel of one of these cars and suddenly it's accelerating out of control, what do you do? Do you try to throw it into neutral? Do you try to turn off the car? Do you try to use the emergency brake? Do you try to slam the brake or pump the brake? Or do you you just start praying and hope that, close your eyes and hope for the best? Uh, Well, I think this idea of this phrase of a stuck accelerator uh, may not be an experience you've had behind the wheel, but it's a good way of describing the kind of life many of us are leading. The accelerator is stuck. And life is accelerating at a pace that is surprising and even unnerving at times. And, and the, the sheer passing of time surprises us. Time is moving fast. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but July is half over. How in the world did that happen? I probably just, that's a real great way to endear yourself as a guest speaker to a congregation. <laughs> Tell them that July is half over. I should probably just dismiss you and get out of here before anybody attacks. Uh, how is that, I mean, really, July is half over. And Every day, probably this has already happened here this morning, where children who are growing up at a normal pace, just like everybody else, somebody who hasn't seen them in a while, sees them and says, I can't believe how big you've gotten. 
it's actually perfectly believable how big they've gotten. They're, they're growing up. That's what they do. But yet we're always amazed at how quickly children grow up. And my, my parents and my wife's parents, whenever they see our children, the first thing they say is, I can't believe how big you are. I can't believe how big you've gotten. Well, it's, that's, how, that's how it works. <laughs> that's what children do. They get big. And so we're continually amazed at how fast time moves, how quickly the summer goes by. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 27 uh, and look at some principles that we can pull out of that for our own, our own situations, but also how circumstances can make time seem to move even faster and make us even a little bit busier. Again, my name is Steve Dunmer. so grateful for the invitation to be here. Uh, I really just came because Chris Stevens is one of my favorite worship leaders. And so just the chance to come and worship here, yeah, you guys are, you, you guys are blessed. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, Saul had a, King Saul had a troubled spirit, and he, when David would come and play the harp for him, he would kind of mellow out. That's what happens with me when Chris Stevens leads worship. I, all my troubles just kind of melt away, and he leads me into the presence of the king. I'm so grateful for Chris. And I think every church should have worship with an accordion. Oh, my goodness. That is so good. That is so good. It, it works, and it's just amazing. I'm, I'll be disappointed for weeks now when I go in, back to my church and there's no accordion. Uh, it really, I, I've, last time I was here in January, it's a lot warmer than the last time I was here. But, uh, she was playing again that, that back then, and I thought, how's that going to work? And it's just, it works. It's beautiful. I love it. So, great to be here. Uh, again, as he said, from Houghton College, Jim Howe was sharing with me earlier a story about uh, his son and daughter-in-law, their, their experience at Houghton. God called his son to Houghton and the work they're doing now. And so every once in a while, just quickly, I'll say this. Um, people ask me, what's the difference between a Christian college like Houghton, the experience you have there compared to another school? It's not just that you go to take your classes and then have chapel and Bible studies on the side of that. But really what we aim for and achieve is an integration of faith and learning. Where Whether you're studying biology or pre-med or pre-law or accounting or education or pastoral ministry, all of that is done with this integration of, of a love for the Word and of the Lord and trying to, to please Him and do any vocation, whether that's a ministry or the marketplace, through the lens of how can we glorify Christ in whatever that is. And so, and, and be able to achieve that at a high level where you're not sacrificing the quality of your education, but actually in a case like Houghton, like getting a top flight education, but the integration of all that, say, how can I be an accountant in Jesus' name? How can I be a doctor in Jesus' name? How can I teach fourth graders math in the name of Jesus? And so uh, lots of Houghton grads in this room and grateful for all of you. And I'm grateful again for the chance to be here at LifeSpring. Hear great things of what God is doing here. And I love every chance I've been here. So thanks again. Let's uh, pray before we jump into the word. Lord, thank you for this church. And thank you for the way you're using this church here. And uh, pray for Pastor Bill and his family as they're on vacation that you'll bring them refreshing and bond them together in this time away as a family. Uh, bring them back refreshed, and re- re- rejuvenated, and uh, ready to plunge forward in a new season of ministry. Now as we turn to your word, we open it with anticipation that this is your word. We give you thanks for the, the faithful hands that have paced, uh, passed it down to us through the, through the generations. Would you speak to us again through your word this morning, Lord? We pray in the strong name of Jesus and your proven reputation. Amen. Amen. Acts 27, beginning of verse 7. I think we're going to have this up on the screen as well. It says, We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snedus. And as the wind was against us, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Sailing past it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. 
And since much time had been lost and sailing was now dangerous because even the fast had already gone by, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I can see that the, now, uh, that the voyage will be, at, will be with danger and much heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Verse 11, But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And since the harbor was not suitable for spending the winter, the majority was in favor of putting out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, where they could spend the winter. It was, the, it was a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest. A little bit of background here of what's happening. This is late in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul has just testified before King Herod Agrippa. The New Testament is littered with Herods, and none of them told each other not to mess with the Christians. They keep making the same mistake. They all mess with the Christians, and I'll pay the consequences of that. And so Paul has just testified before King Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa famously in that passage says, uh, oh, you think I'm going to be so quickly convinced to follow Jesus? Not a chance. And Paul is now in chains on this voyage where he's going to go testify before the emperor. And so here is Paul, late in the book of Acts, in chains, on a ship, on his way to testify before the emperor, when all of a sudden a storm descends on the ship. And the pace begins to quicken. Time is moving fast for them already, but especially now as the storm hits. And there's two reasons why the, storm, why the, why the pace picks up. The first is because of the storm. The storm isn't anybody's fault. The storm just descends on them. Uh, I was talking to somebody just recently about how last, earlier this week, we went to Niagara Falls. Um, I was born and raised in the Niagara Falls area and um, took my kids down there. We're walking by the Niagara River, and the Niagara River is a raging storm. That is not to be trifled with. Last time I went to Niagara Falls, my, my youngest son was two years old, and it terrified me to have him that close to that river because of the raging currents. It was like taking him up to pet a lion. Let's not even get close to that thing. Let's keep our distance. And uh, as someone said, uh, I'll just paraphrase it here. The wilderness isn't for you or against you. It's just very unforgiving of mistakes. And that's what they're experiencing here on the ship. The storm isn't their fault. The storm isn't for them or against them. They just have to get everything just right. And the second thing that causes the, the situation being to accelerate is their bad choices. It's not their fault that they got caught in the storm. It's their fault that they kept sailing on. Again, to bring this a little closer to, to home, I mentioned I was born and raised in the Buffalo and Niagara area a.k.a. Bill's country. I think Canandaigua is Bill's country. It's not my fault. <laughs> I, I don't think my parents sinned or that I sinned to, to take that on myself. It's not my fault that I was born there right before four straight Super Bowl losses or <laughs> 17 years of missing the playoffs. Uh, it is my fault that I keep cheering for them. Uh, it is my fault that I haven't learned my lesson, that even now there's this little whisper in the back of my mind saying, could this be the year? Maybe this could be the year. You just never know any given Sunday. Uh, there's been a lot of suffering in my life as a result of all that. So that's part of what's happening here. If the storm isn't Paul's fault, it's not the ship's fault, but it is their fault that they kept sailing on. And in all of our lives, that can be the case where a storm hits. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Something that happens to you, an illness, a crisis, something that somebody else does, and you didn't bring the storm on yourself. It just happens to you. And then there's others of us where the pace begins to pick up because of mistakes that we made or choices that we made or when the storm hit, bad decisions that we made in the process. And here in Acts 27, the accelerator just got stuck. Nobody knows it yet, but the accelerator is stuck under the floor mat. The accelerator is stuck somehow or another, and they're just cruising along without any realization of how bad things really are. But what happens next is a predictable pattern for those of us who have a, a stuck accelerator. Look at verse 14. It says, But soon... A violent wind called the nor northeaster 
rushed down from Crete. And since the ship was caught and could not be turned head on into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven. By running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they took measures to undergird the ship, and then fearing that they would run on the Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and, were, and so were driven. We were being pounded by the storm so violently that, that on the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard, and on the third day with their own hands they threw the ship's tackle overboard. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest raged, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Picture the scene for a moment. They've spent 14 days in this wicked storm. And Paul describes it that it was, it was such a bad storm that they hadn't seen the sun by day or the stars by night. It was just utter darkness. And the sound, you can just hear the deafening sound of the waves hitting up against the side of the boat and, and waves washing up over the top of the boat. And they say, for these 14 days, these are experienced sailors, not like Paul. Paul is just kind of out there on this cruise against his will. Uh, but... These are experienced, this is what they do every single day of their life. When we were on the Maid of the Mist on Wednesday down in Niagara Falls, we were so amazed, and all of us who were there as tourists on this, on this ship were just so amazed by the views. The guys who are running the thing do this every day, every 20 minutes, all summer long, and they, just, they were totally unimpressed by the whole thing. The sailors are kind of the Maid of the Mist tour guides here. They do this all the time. They're totally unimpressed. They're unflapped. And so for 14 days, they're like, oh, we just got to do this. Oh, we just need to try this. Or I've been in a situation like this before. If we just do this, we can get out of this. And suddenly after 14 days, their tone changes. And they realize they've tried everything they know how to try. All their training has come up for naught. And they don't know what to do. And after 14 days of no sun by day and no stars by night, and nothing they know how to do work, they're throwing everything overboard and doing everything they can, and now they just realize we're done. This is where they realize that the accelerator is stuck. And they realize that they're going to crash if they can't find a way out of it and that there's nothing they can do. And I've watched a lot of people go through life where the sheer pace of life has eroded their hope. The sheer pace of life and the hurry of life and the busyness of life just wears them down to where they reach this point where they give up all hope of ever changing. A young man was... Uh, moved to the Chicago area, had a new, new role there and had a young family and, and a demanding job and a, a family that had many demands and he was feeling all the pressure of every aspect of his life and so he went to Dallas Willard who was a prolific author and a professor at USC, uh, wrote about the, the ways of Christ and uh, deep things in the spiritual life. And so this man went to Dallas Willard and said, what do I need to do in the, in the midst of all my busyness and all the demands and all all the pressures around me, what do I need to do to have a vibrant spiritual life at this time in my life? What, what do I need to do to stay closely connected to Christ despite all of this? And there was a long pause. And then Dallas Willard said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And there's another long pause. And then that, the young man wrote that down really quick. He said, okay, I got it. What else? He said, there's nothing else. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You think about the three reasons why so many of us hurry. Uh, the first is like we're seeing here in Acts 27. It's just the circumstances of our life. It's not something that we chose. Hurry chose us. Think about mothers with young children or, or people who are caring for an older parent or 
maybe there's an illness going on and there's something that has descended on your life where hurry chose you, just what you have to do to get through the season. Uh, like me, we've got three kids in soccer camp and a kid at boss basketball camp and somehow just the storm of our summer has made, left us very little white space left. And sometimes that can be the case. Hurry just cho- chooses you. Uh, or secondly, it can be because you're a highly motivated person. You're just driven. You want to achieve. You, you don't like to sit still. You tell people you can't sit still and so if you go to a barbecue, you've got to be standing over by the grill, checking out, make sure everything's going right. Or, or you tell people you'd rather burn out than rust out, and so you, you keep busy. You can't remember the last time you took a vacation, or even when you do take a vacation. It's so scheduled and, and planned out, you got to even, even have your potty break scheduled, and everything's just packed to the nines. And if someone just elbowed you to, in the ribs, I'm very sorry, but that might be an indication that that's you. Uh, but there's a third group. Beyond those of us who it's our circumstances or because we're really motivated, a lot of us just hurry because it's our habit. It's just our habit. We don't have to. It's just what we always do. An indication that might be that if at some point this morning, either with the people that you came to church with or even just in self-talk, if you caught yourself saying, hurry up, you might suffer from what we call hurry sickness. And in the early service, I don't think I noticed it in this service, but the early service, when I mentioned that, I saw a bunch of heads do this. And turn, children turning towards parents and spouses turning towards each other. And uh, that may be an indication. Maybe. And even this morning, I knew that I was going to be speaking on this, and even I caught myself saying to my kids, we're getting out the door this morning, hurry up, we've got to go. Um, but listen, most of us don't hurry because we have to. We hurry because it's our habit. Gardner Merchant first coined the phrase hurry sickness after he'd done research with 10,000 people in the UK. And he said, by definition, hurry sickness is, quote, a behavior pattern, a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency. And he says it's described as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. A continual, overwhelming sense of urgency. Everything's got to get done right now. We've got to rush, 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 rush. This is that feeling you experience when it's about time for church to get out and the preacher's still preaching <laughs> and you're, you're looking at your watch and you know it's coming and you just begin to feel that rise up in you. Now I've gone from preaching to meddling. But that's hurry sickness. You just think about this. You don't have to say this out loud, but on a scale of one to ten of hurry sickness, one being your I should dismiss you because you don't hurry at all. You don't feel any sense of busyness at all. The 10 being, you're wondering how I'm reading your mind. Pick a number of where you are in the hurry sickness scale. How much is hurry and busyness a part of how you do things? Just this, this, this anxious energy that just drives you through your day, rushing around. The hurry sick soul is an unsafe soul. Hurry sickness is hostile conditions for a soul in Christ. Uh, and for some of us, it, we, we, it frankly gets our adrenaline pumping and we get excited and we like to live. We'd like to have a big project. We like to have things going on. We like to have a packed schedule because it gets your adrenaline pumping. But they found that hurry releases the stress hormone that is closely tied to heart disease and sickness. So hurry sickness isn't just bad for your soul. It's bad for your body and everything begins to break down. And so that's what we're seeing here in Acts 27 is the hurry sickness is picked up and they've tried everything and hopelessness has begun to set in. It's amazing what Paul does next. Look at what Paul does in verse 33. Right before this, he pretty much stands up and says, I hate to tell you I told you so, but I told you so. In verse 33, just before daybreak, 
Paul urged all of them to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been in suspense and remaining without food, having eaten nothing. Eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will help you survive, for none of you will lose a hair from your heads. And after he said this, he took bread. And giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all of them were encouraged and took food for themselves, and we were in all 276 persons in the ship. And after they had satisfied their hunger, they lightened the ship by throwing the wheat into the sea. They threw the leftovers overboard. Um, this, is, this is an amazing scene. And totally unexpected in the context of what's happening here. Here's Paul, a prisoner on the ship, 276 people on board, experienced sailors and centurions and guards, and Paul, a prisoner, stands up and takes charge. They've been in a storm for 14 days, utter darkness and despair, the deafening sound of the waves kicking up against the side of the boat, just over and over again. Everyone's soaked. And then Paul stands up, and he serves a meal. He says, with some southern hospitality, y'all are hungry. Y'all need a snack. And he breaks the bread. And if this was made into a movie, I think the way that they would do this is over the, the whole course of the movie, you just hear the sound of the rain and the winds and the waves kicking up against the boat. And then in this scene, as Paul stands up, they just turn the sliders down, they turn the volume down on the, the sound of the water behind the background. And it would get quiet. And they'd get calm. And you just hear Paul's voice. And you hear the, the breaking of the bread. And you'd hear the sound of, of the people on the boat there chewing the bread as they're eating it together. Just like that. And, <laughs> and you just feel the, from the over, overwhelming urgency of the storm to now the overwhelming calm of this meal. Paul has just unstuck the accelerator. Paul has just ruthlessly eliminated hurry from his life. Amazingly in this storm, this hopeless storm. And what was the key to do it? A meal. A meal. It reminds me of Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, if there was ever a time in Jesus' life when the accelerator was stuck, if there was ever a time when he was going to feel the overwhelming sense of urgency of, the, of this moment and what was about to happen, here he's just moments away from his crucifixion and what does he do in those final moments? He has dinner. And not just the drive through let's run through the drive through let's stop over at Wegmans, pick up some stuff. No, this is a meal that took reserving a room and picking up the groceries and making all the arrangements, and getting the 13 of them all together in this space. He just takes his time with this leisurely meal, which is surprising. I think one of the reasons why the disciples never really seemed to grasp that, that Jesus meant it when he said he was about to die was because he was just so calm about it. He, there's no sense of hurry or rush in him as he's talking about it. But there, in, the, in his waning moments before his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, he has a meal. It's unhurried. It's unrushed. They just break bread together. In fact, in all the ways that you've ever pictured Jesus, if you ever pictured Jesus in a hurry, when Jesus was born, we see him vulnerable. When Jesus was 12, we see him wise beyond his years. When Jesus turned over the tables, we see him with righteous anger. When Jesus was at the wedding feast, even with Mary's pleadings for him to turn water into wine, Jesus was reluctant. When he called Peter and Peter said, you don't want to be around a guy like me, Jesus was persistent. When he was at the tax collector's house and they accused him of dining with sinners, Jesus was unflinching. When Jesus took the fish and the loaves and fed 5,000 people, we see Jesus, Jesus being miraculous. When Jesus, took, uh, when, Jesus, when Jesus' disciples kept the people from 
bothering him with their children. We see Jesus perturbed. And when Jesus said, no, let the children come to me, we see Jesus kind and tender-hearted. When Jesus healed the sick, we see him showing compassion. When Jesus heard that Lazarus has died, we see him weep in the synagogue and on the hillside and in a boat. We see Jesus teaching. In the boat, we, during the storm, we see Jesus sleeping. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus alone in the desert. Jesus fasted and was surrounded by angels and wild animals. Before the high priest's accusations, Jesus, Jesus was silent. On the cross, Jesus said he was thirsty. In his final, final moments, we see him experience suffering. And when Jesus rose again from the grave, he was victorious. But never in all the pages of Scripture have you ever seen Jesus in a hurry. You've never seen him rush. In fact, that was one of the major pet peeves some people had about Jesus. They heard that Lazarus was sick, and the disciples said, we, we should hurry up. And he said, no, it's okay, we can take the long road, long way. There at that wedding feast I alluded to, Mary's, Mary's just this proud mom. Like, come on, show them what you can do. Show them what you can do. And he's like, it's just not time yet. Over and over again through the pages of Scripture, as people are trying to speed up Jesus, Jesus is slowing things down. And it drove some people absolutely crazy. And maybe Jesus wants to slow you down too. Maybe that's the most important thing he needs to do in your life right now. Well, in the end, in Matthew 24, 27, 44, it says that the ship ran aground and was broken up. And they, they worked it out that everyone who could swim was told to jump out and swim to shore. And anybody who couldn't swim, they grabbed on to pieces. And verse 44 says, the rest were to get there on planks and on other pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land safely. After everything they'd been through, Paul was right. And everyone gets to shore safely, 276 people, prisoners included, by swimming or by hanging on to the pieces of this broken up ship. The ship didn't survive, the cargo didn't survive, but everyone on board did. Not a soul was lost. Everyone faces a storm at one kind or, of one kind or another at one time in their life or another. And maybe for some of you today, that storm is hurry or busyness. Or there's another storm that's causing you to feel the urgency and feel like you've got to move so fast. And... I want to see if we can get you to shore safely today, too. And there are, I think, four practical steps we can take. And maybe one of these uh, ties into your life and is a good solution for you. And the first one is a remedy for hurry sickness, is to prepare a meal. We see Paul do this on the, on the ship. We see Jesus do this on the night he was betrayed. And maybe if your life, if your soul, your marriage, your family has been suffering from hurry sickness, one of the most meaningful things you could do is not run through the drive-thru, but get the groceries, get the ingredients, and make the meal together. Cook it together. It might even be clumsy and awkward. Uh, you know, Bishop William Williman, when, describing Acts 27, when Paul serves that meal, he says, he says, some people, the world will look at that and say, what good will that do? Which is, ironically, the same thing my wife says to me every time I offer to help cook supper. What good will that do? Isn't that waste of perfectly good groceries. But there's something good that happens when we slow down and take that time together. One of my favorite authors, pastors, says, um, there's something about mixing conversation and calories together that make them both more meaningful. And you can have a great conversation. Somehow when you have that conversation over a meal, it just makes it more meaningful. There's, or you can have a great meal and eat that on your own. It's not quite as satisfying as when you share that with somebody you love. And so mingling those two, conversation and calories. By the way, it's a theological fact that one of the best cures for hurry sickness is s'mores. Um, yeah. <laughs> that got an amen, yeah. And, and it's kind of it's 
preposterous, but actually I've been training my, I've got three boys, uh, twin boys who are 11 and a six-year-old. I'm trying to train them right now that the best roasted marshmallow, you can't rush. You got to find that warm spot in the fire where it's hot, but not too hot. And let that thing rest over there and get good and golden brown so the inside is all gooey. You know, you, if you try to rush it, and they're always trying to hurry it, and they put it right in the fire, and then it gets all black. And Nobody should have more carbon in their diet. So try to get that so it's all good and gooey, and you take your time and to convince them that it's worth the wait, and then you bite into that s'more, and it all just gets caught in my beard, and I'm pulling marshmallow chunks out for days. And it, it takes time. You, gotta, you can't rush that thing. I just grossed some of you out a lot. <laughs> Imagine what it's like for my, like for my family. But it, it, something about that leisurely pace. So maybe it's not a full-blown meal tonight. Maybe it's just roasting some marshmallows and having some s'mores. might be a perfect remedy for hurry sickness in your case. Um, second one is a change of scenery. Um, Mark Batterson has this formula. He says, a change of pace plus a change of place equals a change of perspective. Changing a change of scenery plus a change of pace can just help you see things differently. And maybe if you're high on that spectrum of hurry sickness and you can't remember the last time you took a vacation or the last few vacations you've taken have been really busy, maybe a vacation's in order. And you've still got half of July and most of August, all of August in theory, to try to fit something like that in. And maybe a change of scenery is just what you need to pull away and get a new perspective, and see things a little bit differently. Um, short-term mission trips are really useful in this way, too. That we can go and do a lot of good in, in another country or in another city in a short-term mission trip, but often one of the best benefits is what it does in our own heart, the, the change that that brings because of a change of pace, a change of place, and a change of perspective that comes about. Um, so prepare a meal, a.k.a. s'mores, or a change of scenery. The third thing is to schedule some quality time. Or, sorry, quantity time. James Wilhoyt says that uh, quality time often shows up unannounced in the midst of quantity time. That those of us who are especially prone to hurry sickness, and I'm a recovering hurry sickness addict, uh, feel like, okay, we just schedule some quality time. We're going to schedule, we're going to have dinner tonight. It's going to be great. It's going to be really quality time. It's focused quality time. And that's a myth. That's a myth that our culture has bought, that you can schedule quality time. You have to schedule a quantity of time. And there in the midst of that, these magical moments of quality time emerge. You can't rush it. And so there in this, having three quarters of the summer left, maybe this is a good time to schedule some big stretches of time that aren't rushed, that aren't hurried, where God can just magically make quality time emerge all on its own, unrushed, unhurried. Um, C.S. Lewis says, I don't believe that good work can ever be done in a hurry. And I think quality time is especially that way. You can't rush it. You can't microwave it. You've got to take your time with it. And here's the last one. So it's prepare a meal, eat, eat s'mores, get a change of scenery, schedule quantity time. And the last one might be the easiest, maybe the most urgent. Take a nap. It might be the holiest thing you can do this week is to go home. I don't know what your afternoon plans are, but go home, put the, let the dishes sit in the sink, find your favorite couch or your favorite recliner or your favorite yard uh, lawn chair or your hammock and take a holy nap. And if anybody gives you a hard time, tell them the pastor made you. Uh, it might be the most important thing you can do. Um, when, when I first became a pastor, I was always shocked that I could stand up and preach and people could fall asleep while I was preaching my heart out. <laughs> Nobody here has, I don't think. At least you've hidden it well if you have. 
But then I realized it's because people are so tired. And this is one of the only times they actually sit still and can't fidget too much, can't do it. And sometimes when, that, when you feel yourself falling asleep in church, it sure can't be because Pastor Bill is there any, any issue with his preaching. It's sometimes it's just because we're so hurried, we're so busy that we sit still and all of a sudden it just overwhelms us. Your body's like, here's a chance, you're going to sleep. <laughs> and it knocks you out. So you go take a nap. Well, the, the Department of Transportation in 2011 did some research into the Toyota stuck accelerator thing. They were trying to figure out what was behind this, what was the exact cause, was there something they needed to do? And Car and Driver magazine reported on the findings and they found that, bottom line, uh, the majority of cases of stuck accelerator, it was people who were driving a rental car or a loaner car or a car that wasn't familiar with them. Or it was somebody, a parking lot attendant who was taking somebody's car and parking it for them. And what they found that in most of those cases, there is no case that the brake pedal had ever been pressed. Um, that people thought that they were pressing the brake pedal, but their foot was actually on the accelerator. And here, it's just terrifying to think about it. People who were sure that they were pressing the brake and they were gunning it. Uh, author Malcolm Gladwell did some research on this as well, and one of the people he interviewed said this. He says, if you have functioning brakes, brakes win. Brakes versus engine, brakes win. And so he asked the person, he said, if, you have, you're, if you're flooring it, you put all the way down the gas, and then you also press the brake, how much more space does it take to stop the car? They said about 10 feet. Brakes versus engine, brakes always win. Let those who have ears, let them hear. What is true of your car is also true of your soul. If your engine is revving, if you feel like the accelerator is stuck, if you feel like things are moving at a pace that is just beyond what you can control, beyond what you can do anything about, then as now, a car and driver did some research on this. They said in 1987, this happened with Audis. And they researched the Audis, and they did this again in 2011. They said, then as now, no car could overpower its brakes. What's true of your car is true of your soul. When things are accelerating and your engine is revving, hit the brakes. Hit the brakes. It's one of the reasons why God didn't just work this into the fringes of his teaching and the fringes of scripture. It's one of the top ten. Sabbath. Rest. Not as a burden. Not as this awful thing that God wants to take away one day of your week every week. No, just recognizing you're wired this way. He has made you not to be in perpetual motion, not to be in perpetual hurry or busyness, but to rest. He is so good. He will never let you down. He cares for the pace that you're living at. So you may be in a storm of one kind or another. Maybe it's a storm that you didn't bring on yourself. Maybe it's a storm that you have brought on yourself. Maybe it's this pace is picking up on you. But friends, rest is the cure for the hurry sick soul. And I pray that you have a wonderful nap this afternoon. Lord, I thank you for this church. Thank you for the, the many wonderful things you're doing here and the ways you're working the lives of your beloved children. Thank you that you don't want us to live at this relentless pace. That you don't need us to be insatiably busy that you care for us enough to want us to rest and to command us to rest and even give us the space to it. Lord, for those in this space who are most struggle with taking that time, uh, may, may you prompt them by your spirit 
when there are those moments, when they need to take those moments. May we rest well in you. Pray this in the strong name of Christ.